Bloody Elbow presents the sixth round post-fight show, which gives you a rundown and full analysis of the bouts that took place on this weekend's UFC event. Hey everybody, welcome back to the sixth round post-fight show with me, Zane Simon, and my co-host once again, Dane Fox. Thank you for joining us, Dane, Eddie, Mercado, Stranded at Sea. One more time, we've got to send the Coast Guard out after him, but Dane has stepped up on short notice here to jump in and talk about UFC Vegas 66, which, which just wrapped up at the Apex facility in Las Vegas, Nevada, with Jared Cannonier winning a wild split decision against Sean Strickland in which no three judges could agree on any one round. Really? I haven't even seen that yet, but yeah. wow. All three judges scored every single or had one dissenting judge per round, at least. Well, I mean, it has to be it, only one. You can't have all three of them can't have different scores per round. But uh, yeah, there was one dissenting judge in every round. Of to be fair, that's actually a very good description of how the fight went because it was one of those fights where at the end of every round you were questioning. I think I'll give it to him. Yeah, I mean, we talk about a lot about, and man, somebody must have got in Dominic Cruz's ear because he could not shut up about uh, damage <laughs> as being the primary scoring criteria. And, yeah. uh, you know, we talk a lot about that. And when you have a fight like this where you've got two guys who are pretty much just having a kickboxing match, neither guy gets stunned, neither guy gets rocked, Maybe they both get a little wobbled here or there for like a second, but there's no follow-up. Nobody's hurt and getting swarmed or anything like that. And you just have a pretty even pace of strikes traded back and forth across every round. Then you really got to start getting into the idea of what, what, what does damage mean and how are you scoring it? Because, Jared Cannonier just hits harder than Sean Strickland. Just does. Just a technique, physiognomy, whatever you want to call it. He is a stronger dude who hits harder. But if he's not hurting Sean Strickland more, if he's not changing the fight more, is he damaging him more? I I don't know. I thought, personally, on my scorecard... I gave Sean Strickland the first two rounds. Uh, Cannoneer was landing a lot of big, heavy kicks, but uh, not much to the head or body of note. A lot of jabs, a lot of one-twos that were falling short. And Strickland was keeping a more active pace with head strikes, putting more jabs out there, landing more counter one-twos, stuff like that. And I figured, you know, if neither guy's getting too hurt out of this, I think the judges are probably going to weigh Strickland's head strikes a little more. I'll give Strickland those first two rounds. Then Cannonier started sitting down in the in the next three rounds and landing consistent big heavy shots upstairs to go with his low kicks, to go with his body jabs. Strickland still kept pace with him all throughout. Strickland never got badly hurt, but that for me was the kind of offense over the last half or the back half of the fight that made me be like, ah, okay, you know what? I'll tip it for Cannoneer, and I scored it 48-47 Cannoneer, a score no other judge had. Um, but, yeah, how did you have it, Dane? Um, 
I had it 49-46 Strickland. Um, but, at, you know, like I said at the beginning of, uh, of uh, the broadcast, that it, it was one of those fights where at the end of every round, I was kind of like, um, I think that I'll give this one. You know, there was yeah. no definitive round where it was like, okay, yeah, that's totally Cannoneer's round. Okay, that's totally Strickland's round. So even though I only gave Cannoneer round two, um, that's hardly indicative of how I felt his performance was. Like it was, you know, if, if I'm giving Strickland 49-46, it was about the closest 49-46 scorecard I can give anybody. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like um, Sean, uh, Sean Sheehan, sort of MMA Twitter's uh, best regarded judging expert, had a had a good little quote about this on Twitter during or at the end of the fight or maybe even in the middle of it. He was saying, there's no understanding of judging criteria. There is no, like, amount of um, judging cl- courses you could take or splitting hairs or getting to, you know, going over technique or whatever that is going to make this fight easy to score and clear. Yeah. It just isn't. You have a bunch of head head jabs and one twos to the head from Strickland that most of which weren't that very hard. He he did sit down on a few strikes. I'm not gonna say none of it was. He he had a few he had a mo- couple moments where he even, you know, he even knocked Cannoneer off balance and mm-hmm. maybe stumbled him a little. Um and you're contrasting that with a lot of body body jabs and low kicks from Cannoneer, none of which seemed to affect Strickland at all, and then a handful of really hard head strikes that definitely snapped Strickland's head back and ended up bloodying his nose late. Yeah. And that's just a hard fight to judge. I think that the judge is ultimately giving it, siding on the Cannoneer side of things. I think if you're going to say who was the person who walked out of that fight having taken more damage, whether you could even pin it to any specific round. I think giving it the fight to Cannoneer is right on that sort of like judging the whole fight pride style kind of way. But it is really hard to pick out which, which specific rounds you would want to give him and why I had, I had my feelings on it. You had yours. I don't have, any good way to split between them and say that we had one right answer between us. Well, part of the reason why I opted to give more rounds to Strickland was there, there's no doubt that Cannoneer was landing the heavier shots, but uh, it, it also looked like Strickland was landing the cleaner shots. So mm-hmm. while Cannoneer's oomph was there, I, I don't know how much of that oomph was landing cleanly. So it's, yeah. You know, again, it's not one of those things that I think is worth getting up in arms. Sure. Um, I had Strickland winning it, but I, this is definitely not a hill to die on by any means. No, I, and that's something I often default to, too, when I have a striking battle I'm watching and it's just by the numbers really close and nobody's getting really hurt and it's it keeps a tight fight all the way through. I'll often just look at it like that and just be like, well, who has, who is, who has the better application of technique out there? Is one person throwing better, cleaner strikes? Well, you know, that's at least something to differentiate because then you can maybe assume 
maybe those strikes are landing better. Maybe there's a better chance they'll do more damage, but whatever. Yeah. I, after the bout, as noted by, uh, oh, damn it, Paul Felder, it's a new champion in the middleweight division now. So for Cannoneer, like any win at the top of the division that keeps him in the conversation is good for him because, you know, we have we don't know the UFC has not announced the next uh, the rematch of Israel Adesanya versus uh, Alex Pereira yet. Oh yeah. And we got Robert Whitaker facing, uh, maybe facing Paulo Costa. Paulo Costa keeps saying he's not actually signed to take that fight yet. And uh, so, yeah, for, for Canier, you know, you, you got to keep your name thrown out there. Be like, a, a, any win right now, any, anybody being in the top five could get a title shot in the immediate future. Yeah, yeah. Um at the very least, I think this win uh, for Cannoneer keeps him as a very good candidate to fill in should an injury happen. Sure. Uh, with Adesanya or Pahaya, right? Because even though they haven't scheduled it yet, I have a hard time believing that they're not going to try to rebook that. And Whitaker's the other candidate to have that, but given that Whitaker's uh, contest is happening at a later date, and as much as we all love Bobby Knuckles, he is unfortunately injury-prone. Mm-hmm. Um it, it this at least solidifies Cannoneer as a valid candidate to fill in should there be some sort of uh, injury shenanigans. Yeah. yeah. And with Pereira as champ, like, you know, I, I, I don't want to give him that moniker of like the most beatable champ in the UFC, but he is the most unknown in terms of championship credibility for different yeah. matchups in the UFC. There, It's hard to know how he would match up with, Jerry Cannonier or with Robert Whitaker or with, you know, anybody else running towards the top five of that division is Pereira going to be able to, you know, it, he almost got out wrestled at one point by Israel Adesanya in their fight. Yep. Like, is he going to be able to keep that belt? So I'm, it's, it's a good bit of intrigue because certainly Sean Strickland would not be in a position to get a fight with Alex Pereira had he won. So yeah. this at least keeps a fresh fight in alive. All right. That brings us to a lightweight bout. Armand Soyukin, Demir Ismagulov. Mostly, I think, everything we'd hoped. I don't think anybody really thought that this fight was going to get finished inside the distance. So really what we wanted to see is how many cool scrambles can we get out of this? How many you know, fun, uh, difficult grappling moments. What is, who gets to implement their game? Does Demir Ismagulov get to sit on his jab a lot? Can he be such a great takedown stuffing uh, counter fighter and like, uh, you know, solid defensive fighter to keep Saryukin from running over him? Or is this a fight where Saryukin just gets to show his grit and his wrestling and his great grappling ability against a guy who, much like Gamrot and uh, Israel, uh, or um, not Israel, but um, Islam Makachev, should be able to hang with him everywhere. And out of, it, out of all that, we saw it so you can, you know, this was a moment where his grappling and wrestling game really stepped up because Isma Gulov stuffed him plenty early on in this fight. And 
absolutely forced Saiken to work really hard deep into this to get takedowns. But eventually he got him and, uh, you know, took the fight over just with a really high-pressure wrestling attack. Well, it, even in the beginning, as um, Ismagulov uh, stopped most of Sarukian's earlier attack, uh, at the very least, Sarukian was uh, forcing Ismagulov to be on the defensive. Uh, yeah. There, there was not a moment in the fight where it felt like Ismagulov was in control. No, and based simply on that, it it ended up being a pretty easy fight to score, especially as it went deeper. You're you're right. Sarukian just continued to gain steam, and and Ismagulov just uh, grew more and more tired and gave into the takedowns. Uh, but even from the very beginning. Sarukian was the one who was pushing the pace and who was on the offensive. So uh, based on that, um, very impressive performance from him. Yeah. And that was Magulov uh, entered the, the contest on a 19 fight win streak. And it, he really didn't have any problems with any of his previous opponents. Uh, uh, how many? Five. Yeah. Five UFC opponents coming into this is Magulov had been, I don't want to say dominant, but he'd been in control of, uh, of each of those contests, and this was uh, the complete opposite. Sarukian was in control the whole way. Yep. Great performance from Sarukian. After, afterward, he made a big point about how nobody in the top five, five would fight him, how he deserves a top five fight and all that. Uh, looking at that, I, I think the only dude that he might get a chance to fight, honestly, if we're being real, it's a fight I'd love to see would be Benil Dariush. Yeah, because Dar- yeah, Dariush, he's the one guy up there who's been like, I don't care how many people I have to beat. I don't care who I have to go through. I'll get to the title shot eventually. And that's an admirable stance. It's a great, you know, it, it's, a, it's certainly something that fans love to hear. But it is also the kind of thing that means that the UFC will just be like, well, we got a new really difficult opponent for you to take on that nobody wants to fight. So yeah. you're stepping up. Because we've already had Dustin Poirier. I mean, he's just getting out of the hospital, so I don't know when he's going to be set to fight anybody. But he, you know, he he even called out Benil Dariush, and then like a, a month later, he's like, you know what? I thought about it a little bit, and I don't want that fight. Yep. So you know, so he, Armand Sayukin's not going to be getting the fight with with uh, Dariush or with the uh, Poirier and Chandler. Has, is you know talking about how he thinks that he's close to getting the McGregor fight. He's not turning around and fighting so you can. And uh, maybe sure. Justin Gagey, but yeah, you yeah, know that's, what? That's what I was going to say. Gagey's ballsy enough that he'd probably be willing to take that fight, but he's also been a lot choosier about what fights he's taken in the last. Yeah. Season. So my guess would be you're either looking at. Uh, you're either looking at Dariush or you're looking at um, Fiziev would be the other. Oh, that would be such a terrible matchup for Fiziev. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's a distant possibility. So I want to see Dariush Saikin, though. That, that, that would be a hell of a good fight. Oh, that would be it. No, I'm 100% with you on that one. Um, even looking at that, I would love to see a, a matchup between uh, Sarukian and Oliveira, but I, I don't think Chucky Olives is going to go for that one. True. Yeah, that would also be good. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, he's saying I won the fight. I actually think he did win the fight. But there is always, 
you could you could run it back with Gamrot. I, I scored that one for uh, for Sarukian as well, and I would be more than happy to see them run things back. But uh, typically, the UFC doesn't uh, run rematches like that back again unless there's title implications on the line. So, yeah, and it, it and it, we just thought it was a cool fight, but there are other new fights for Sarukian up there at the top of the lightweight division. So hopefully he'll he'll get a good one. Uh, you know, there's certainly, there are plenty of guys at the top of lightweight, not taking interest or not taking fights. So he's got a right, he's got the right to complain. Oh yeah. Um, hopefully he can make one of those fights happen. All right. That brings us to a flyweight battle, Amir Albazi, Alessandro Costa, and kind of a tentative performance early from Albazi. Uh, I think he maybe didn't. He probably, rightly, didn't want to go out there and get Flash KO'd by some dude nobody's ever heard of, you know? Yeah, uh, kind of like uh, somebody we were just talking about, Dariush, uh, back then. Yeah, uh, and Alexander Hernandez. Yep. Yeah, it can happen, you br- especially when you bring in a newcomer, when guys have had opponent changes and all that. These newcomers, a lot of them are very good, very dangerous fighters. Uh, Costa certainly looked like the kind of physical specimen who could compete at flyweight against most people, you know, just from a physical standpoint. And if you underestimate these people, they're coming in hungry and they know, too, especially if it's short notice, like my big chance to win is just going to blitz you in in round one and get you out early before I start to get tired. So he played it tentative early and then his his corner was just like, you got to go out there and beat this dude. And he did. The moment... Costa started to slow down a little, started to uh, try to press the action a little. His his shots started getting a little wider and a little sloppier. Dalbazi started popping him straight down the middle with better shots, dropped him in the second round, got him down in the third round, and then crushed him with that real slick little uppercut in round three to to knock him out. Really nice finish from Amir Albazi to keep him right in the thick of the uh, flyweight hunt there. See if he can get see see who can get a title shot after we've had the sixth, seventh, or eighth fight between uh, Davidson Figueredo and Brandon Moreno. Yeah, it's it's a performance that's a little bit difficult to judge, um, like in, in terms of what it does for Albazi, because like you said, he's tentative. It, it was tentative at the beginning, uh, but at the same time, he also ended up uh, securing that highlight reel. Uh, finish at the end so in a sense it it does exactly what he what he needed to do for him you know it got him a win but uh, what Albazi needs more than anything um, is a uh, uh, quality win over a name one of the people recognizing to his credit he is trying to get that uh, but they just they just keep pulling out and unfortunately you know he he was less left with uh, Costa, and no disrespect to Costa, he looks like a, a fine talent who's going to uh, be able to make some noise uh, going forward. But he's he's not there yet, and so he doesn't do anything for Alpazi at this point. Yeah, I mean it was one of those fights. I, I, all the, all things considered, had it been just a grind all the way to the finish finish with Alpazi winning but not doing anything interesting, I'd be like, okay, you know you had a chance to perform bigger and really set yourself apart and you didn't, yep. but 
this being a cautious fight where he then knocks him out, I, I got no problem with that over uh, at all. It's just like Costa was never going to do a lot for him. Getting a highlight to put on your record, people will forget about the rest of the fight eventually, and you just have a cool knockout to show off, and that's the best you could ask for out of this. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking maybe after this, Albazi Nicolau. Um, I, I have no problem with that, but I, I think that the UFC will probably try to rebook him with, uh, uh, who was it that pulled out? Royval. It was Royval and, uh, Perez is already rescheduled. Yeah. And Perez, uh, Perez is already rescheduled. I we'll we'll get to this later, but I really want to see Brandon Royval fight Mantle cop. I mean, we could do Albazi cop too, but that that would also be really fun. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, I I just largely say that because uh, so often it's, when you see two fighters yeah. that have agreed to already fight, and then okay, well here's this guy who filled in. Let's get back yeah. to business. It's true. I mean, they've already got a bout agreement signed between these two. So if Royval's going to be ready to go in a little while, they've got a fight signed for him already. It's less work for them to do, and they'll often. You're right. They'll often just take that. So it does seem like a re, a rebooking against Royval is pretty likely. All right, that brings us to a featherweight bout, Alex Caceres, Julian Erosa. And man, I I really thought this would be a good fight for Julian Erosa because Caceres will kind of have whatever fight anybody wants him to have. Yeah. And if Erosa went out there and put a lot of pressure on Caceres, Erosa's a really good, fun pressure fighter, and Caceres would let him pressure forward. And Arosa went out there, and he just had a lot of respect for Caceres. Made it a primarily a kick-trading fight for the first two or three minutes, where both men landed a lot of low kicks, a few body kicks, and Arosa really couldn't step in on much. He finally started to get going just a little bit, started putting his hands on him, on Caceres, backing him up a little. And then he, like, threw a one-two and tried to step back out of the pocket. And, man, he just got crushed with that head kick. Really beautiful finish from Alex Caceres. Yeah. Yeah. No, that – we've – much everything from Alex Well, he's he's had some pretty sweet upsets. He's he's crapped the bed on several occasions. He's he's had some some slick submissions. The one thing that we hadn't seen from him was a brutal knockout of any sorts. Yeah. And and this time he it took what twenty seven UFC fights for that to happen, but damn it if it didn't <laughs> happen. Yeah, no kidding. I mean it's been two thousand and ten since Casera stopped anybody due to strikes. He was not in the UFC before or by, it was his last fight before the UFC. Even on tough, he didn't have any knockouts. Wow. So, yeah, long, long time coming for Alex Caceres. Uh, really great result for him. Fun post-fight speech. I love that. Like, I just, talking about, like, you know, we're all human. We're all together. And I just realized that. And Paul felt like, you, what, just right now? <laughs> yeah. No, it, it very, uh, very much along the lines of his Zen nature, so to speak. So. Yeah. Very fun. Uh, I wouldn't mind seeing him turn around and fight. Um, oh, names just flowing out of my head right now. 
Where did he, was uh, oh, uh, Jonathan Pierce, who just took, came in and took his ranking away with that win over. Uh... Oh, that's right. That's who he, that is who he replaced. Um, yeah. So actually who I was thinking um, there we go. was, um, uh, um, and now I'm having the same issue. There we go. Now I got it. Edson Barboza. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It would be, I mean, that would be a, another ranked fighter. It's win-loss. Barboza's had some hard times lately, but he's always fun and always good for it. Either way, give Caceres another chance to to regain his, his spot in the top 15, I think, after yeah. this win over Arosa. Agreed. All right. Uh, that brings us to a lightweight bout. Drew Dober, Bobby Green, as expected, fight of the night. Uh, Dober, Green came out on fire, looked so good in the first round, looked so good through two minutes of the second round, just slick on the counter, interrupting Dober every time he stepped in, outlanding him two to one, just perfect on everything. Credit to Dober, though. He knows how tough he is, and he really started doubling down in that second round on his pressure and just saying, look, I'm going to take the shots and I'm going to step in and I'm going to force exchanges where I can land. And it worked. He knocked green out. It's just really honestly kind of the first good, really solid combination that he got to land. He knocked green out. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, and the thing is, you know, it, this was one of those fights where, where Green was winning until he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, it's not like, you know, Green's got a little bit of a reputation of being pillow fisted. Uh, but it's just more that he's just quickly throwing his hands out there to, to land something as opposed to sitting down on his shots. And he was actually sitting down on a good chunk of those shots I was landing yeah. on over. And he was eating them for breakfast just, you know, several times after some of those, he would smile right back at him. Yeah, like he, you said, Dober's got one hell of a chin on him. Yeah, but he, Green buckled his his legs a couple times even. Like, mm-hmm. it was a great performance from Green. It was a masterful performance right up until the, that that ultimate final flurry. And it's just a credit to Dober for being that tough. Yep. And that having that kind of will, you know, he talks about it, about having fighting with heart and knowing exactly what kind of fight he needs to have. And he went out there and he made it happen and he picked up a great win for it. And then he called out Jalen Turner and, um, I don't know. I mean, I I wouldn't say that if I'm Turner, I don't take that fight because it's not like Dover is impossible to beat and Turner is huge and Dover's not going to grapple him. So it's going to be a fun fight no matter what. Yeah. But that is, you know, like it, it would be a risk for Turner. Oh, it absolutely would be. Yeah. Um, Dover's, uh, he's the crafty veteran at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he knows how to, to get inside of uh, uh, the reach of longer guys. You know, he's had several fights with that. Um, and even though Turner's getting better at using his unbelievable range, you know, all it takes is one time. Um, and if Dober can land cleanly, you know, that, that could be lights out for Turner. So 
it's it's not a fight without risk for for Turner, but at the same time, uh, given the logjam of uh, uh, the fighters ahead of Turner, you know, we, we talked about this problem for Saruki, and then Sarukian's not that far ahead of Turner, so that might be the best type of fight for uh, for Turner to do is to to go after somebody with Dober who's who's got a reputation as an action fighter. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd love to see Dober take on somebody like uh, Hanato Moicano, especially after Moicano's last fight where he just went nuts in his post-fight speech and all that. Yep. Seems like that'd be a good, solid matchup of uh, two vets who've turned themselves into really solid, dependable action fighters over the last couple of years. Yeah. All right, that brings us to a middleweight bout. Michael Oleksajic, Cody Brundage, and... Um, Big credit to Cody Brundage. I did not think this fight was good for him. I did not think this was going to be a kind matchup to him. But I do think he really tried hard to fight the best fight he could and to take this fight away from Alexejic. He did not do what he's done in pretty much every other UFC fight Brundage has had, where he's been on the back foot early and he's let his opponent pressure him. And he's just kind of been reactive. Uh, he came right out and took the fight right to Oleksajic out of the gate, Tried, took him down right away, was on his back, was making this fight a grappling battle, trying to slow Oleksajic down. And the moment Oleksajic twisted through that back mount into to wind up on top in guard, he just started wrecking Brundage. Yeah. Um, Brundage had the right idea for the fight. He did. Um, he had the, a, a great game plan going into it. He just he got a little bit sloppy with his control, and at that point, Oleksajek just completely took advantage of him. I mean, Oleksajek, he's he was a tiny, he was like the tiny baby light heavyweight. Yeah, and he just seems to be a massive beast at middleweight. That drop down seems like one of the rare times where a change in weight class really changed the functionality of a fighter's matchups. Uh, yeah, I, I think about the, you know, like some of his past uh, contests at, at light heavyweight, you know, um, for instance, like with Ovin St. Preux, and he was yeah. just dwarfed. Like St. Preux is known for, for getting tired, but because Oleksajic was just so much smaller than him, he, he had trouble moving him around and just ended up being the tired one in that in that case. So even though Oleksajic is cutting more weight, he, he seems to have a lot more energy because he's not having to, to deal with uh, these mountains of men moving him yeah. around or him trying to move them around. So definitely a good move for him. Yeah. He looks, he looks like a killer. I mean, it's not that often you see anybody knocking people out from guard these days. So really just fantastic work for, from Alexajic. And I can't wait to see who he fights. Now he called out Chris Curtis who accepted the fight on uh, Twitter. So I am, you know what? Damn it, just make it. I want to see it. I, I'm a little bit surprised that Curtis did that. You know, he had a nice bounce yep. back win over Buckley, and I, I figured he might want to get somebody uh, uh, in the rankings. But you know, I'm, I'm with you. That's that. I yeah. think that's a fun fight. I'm I'm down for it. If Curtis is willing to accept that fight, I want to see it. Mm-hmm. All right, that brings us to a woman's strawweight bout: Corey McKenna, Cheyenne Blismus, and. Um, Credit to McKenna, she stayed tough and took this fight away from Blissmus. 
Blissmith made made a couple of really bad mistakes in this bout. Uh, she actually initiated the clinch in round two that ended up with her just getting clinched and out and ground out against the fence for the whole rest of the round. Had she not done that, she probably would have won it. Um, but it's a credit to McKenna that she is finding ways to hang in and be tough and overperform with as, as one of the smaller and least uh, venomous straw weights. Uh, yeah, no, and good, uh, good on McKenna for also uh, realizing that after Blissmus engages Clint, that hey, wait a minute, I can I can win the fight here because uh, she she continued that type of attack in the third round. You know, she she went for the takedown and um, was able to to grind out a yeah, kind of an ugly win, but hey, an ugly win's a win, so who cares? And um, uh, it it kind of reminds us uh, with regards to Blissmus, you know, we I think we all kind of gave her the the benefit of the doubt in her debut loss. Uh, was it Montserrat or uh, Montserrat Conejo? Yeah, Conejo. Yes, yes. I I always forget her. Uh, yeah, yeah. And she just beat her on the base of the head and shoulder throw. Yeah. And it doesn't look like uh, uh, Blissmus has fully addressed uh, that that issue. Um, you know, she's she's young enough that she's got time, but sure. Given yeah, that that was two did. years ago. Yeah, she. Did, I mean, she did all right in this fight, not letting Corey McKenna take her down easily. She just got stuck in position. She doesn't have the urgency to kind of like make sure that she sticks to where she needs to be or to fight her way out of bad positions once she gets there. Yep. It uh, it definitely was sort of just a grit and determination performance from McKenna that saw her get the win here. Yeah. Um. And you know, good win on McKenna. Yeah. She's she's what twenty one, twenty two, something like that. Yeah, she's definitely she's one of the younger twenty three. She's one of the younger talents, definitely okay. in the UFC. And uh, yeah, no, she's putting it together. She's now three and one. You know, she's she's got that loss to Elise Reed, which is a tough one. But she beat Kay Hansen. She beat Cheyenne Blissmith. She beat uh, Miranda Granger. She's putting together her her victories, and she beat Vanessa Demopoulos on the uh, Contender Series. That's right. And, uh, you know, those are wins that are aging better over time. So, yeah, good on her. Yep. That brings us to a welterweight bout. Matthew Semmelsberger, Jake Matthews. This is one of two fights on this card that I was surprised that one of the fighters in the bout took the fight at all. Did that be and, Matthews? Yeah. I was really surprised Jake Matthews took this fight against Matthew Semmelsberger. Because it did absolutely nothing for him at all. And it's even it's even a worse decision. Like, the way he lost this fight makes it even a worse decision to have taken it. Because by all right and reason, Jake Matthews definitely was the better fighter in the cage for at least two rounds against Matthew Semmelsberger. But he got hurt in every round. Yep. So the judges have to they have to give to Semmelsberger. Semmelsberger came closer to win, to finishing the fight. He did what we want you we want to see fighters rewarded for trying to finish, not for having clean technique, not for being good at controlling their opponent, 
not for getting to good positions, whatever. We wanted to award, first and foremost, the desire to finish fights because that, that's what keeps the sport interesting and lively and yeah. from just becoming a BJJ or wrestling offshoot where we're awarding points for positions, you know. And uh, Semmelsberger, yeah, he he just he was fast and he was willing to bowl forward and he kept crushing Matthews. You know, I, I'll give Dominic Cruz shit all, uh, all all week for keeping on talking about like, oh, did he, he cut him? So did he win that round on damage? What, whatever, Tom. <laughs> but he did very correctly identify that Matthews, the big problem for Matthews here was that he was trying to counter a straight right with a left hook. And he just kept getting beat on the straight right all fight long. Yeah, and, and it's not like it's a mystery that Semmelsberger has power. He's He's yeah. got two knockouts in under 16 seconds within the UFC. You can question the level of competition that he delivered those on, but to be able to do that in the UFC is impressive no matter who it's against. Yeah. So... Um, the fact that Matthews continued to toy with him in that way, because I, I, I felt like it was pretty well a consensus that uh, if the fight hits the mat, Matthews is by far the, the better grappler, you know? Um, Semmelsberger has shown some... Technically, he was better everywhere. He outstruck Semmelsberger for long portions of this fight. He out-wrestled him. He out-grappled him. But on the but on the mat, he's he's not at risk of having a semi-sugar yeah, blast. Yeah. And, and that's the reason why I say that. It's just like, you know, after the first knockdown, it's like, okay, it, you know for a fact what he can do now. Yeah. Why, why not uh, emphasize the ground? And, and Matthews, he didn't do that until the third round. And at that point, it's like, dude, you're, you're already down two rounds. You, you got to go for the finish. So Yeah, yeah. It was it was just a really bad outing for Jake Matthews and a great win for Semmelsberger. Right? Absolutely, you know, puts his career back on track. This is a dude who, had he gone out and lost this fight, back-to-back losses to Morono and Matthews, then we'd be looking at his next fight as a, like, are you going to get cut? Because yep. A.J. Fletcher, beating A.J. Fletcher, Martin Sano, and Jason Witt is not a, you know... Does, that that doesn't make you any any kind of force in the welterweight division. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is this is kind of a career redefining win for Semmelsberger. It places him firmly in that the middle of that division as a fun action fighter that the UFC can depend on to mix into all kinds of fights. And uh, you know, you could throw him in there with somebody like uh, Randy Brown or. Uh, you know, like uh, he's already lost to Chaos Williams, right? Yes. Yeah, he already lost to Chaos Williams. Let me see who was who was I thinking? I was looking at maybe maybe Trevin Giles would be that would be a pretty you know kind matchup to him to help build him into that position a little more. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the the loss for uh, for Matthews, he uh, it labels him as uh, Eugene Robinson, beloved to say as a gicta, the guy. Yeah. I just, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm kind of thinking maybe do do you do Jake Matthews against Alex Morono, you know? That actually would be fun, right? Good use of both guys coming off hard losses. All right, that brings us to a bantamweight bout: Saeed Nurmagomedov, Saeed Yakub Kakramanov. 
And this was also a fight where I was just like, man, Saeed Nurmagomedov, why would you take this? <laughs> like, you just beat Douglas De Silva and Cody Stamen. That was enough to get you into the into the bottom of the top 15, get you a ranking next to your name. There's a whole bunch of dudes right around there, like Adrian Yanez, Chris Gutierrez, you know, um, just a bunch of guys right in that way. Uh, Ricky Simone, right in that area, the top 15 that all need fights. You're a tough fighter. You can compete with anybody. Why would you fight a guy like Saeed Yakub Kakramanov, who's oh, who's two and zero in the UFC, no profile, no name at all, and is just a relentlessly grueling, punishing, straight jacket, hug you like crazy wrestler? Yeah, like it's just a, and it looked like for a full round and a four full round and three minutes and. 45 seconds this looked like a terrible decision to take this fight Uh and then he hit that ninja choke (laughs) and he he got the tap and I mean in in, you know in one sense it's a huge testament to uh, Nurmagomedov's toughness and his will and his ability to just keep seeing openings and keep trying and on the other side, it's also a reflection of the fact that Kakramanov really only has one gear. And if you are if you can hang in there with it, you always know where he's gonna be and what he's gonna be doing. He is gonna be on your hip trying to take you down. Yeah. So no, no. this is one of those uh, uh weird fights where um I think that uh, the loser actually has his stock go up more than the winner because uh, Nurmagomedov was already in the rankings. Like you said, yep. he, he didn't have a lot to gain by taking this, but no, um, very, very similar to the uh, uh, Dober and Green fight. You know, Kakramanov was winning until he wasn't. Mm-hmm. He he uh, arguably had a 10-8 round in that first round, um, arguably. Yeah. Um, uh, it, doing a lot of the same in the second, he was in complete control, and and but Nurmagomedov just kept spamming those uh, uh, submissions, looking for them, and eventually he got one to stick. And uh, yeah, yeah, crazy I mean, fight. I will say, on um, you know, you say it, it builds Kakramanov up more than Nur- Nurmagomedov, but I will say to to Nurmagomedov's credit, it is all it is also a testament of how intensely dangerous he is because we see all kinds of fighters get in that kind of fight where they are getting punished like that round after round after round and they don't have a chance or a hope in hell of yeah. coming back the way he did yeah no and and that's not to say that Nurmagomedov his stock absolutely still goes up. up yeah yes yes yeah 100% just i think Kakramanov uh, goes up more yeah, uh, he went from way. relative unknown to a guy that you're looking at and be like, wow, he can really compete with really good fighters. Yep, yep. Um, it, but yeah, just it, it was a, a fun fight. One of those that uh, you kind of you want to see happen again. I, I don't expect it to happen again, just given the amount of depth at Bantamweight and so many other different matchups. But Nurmagomedov was a fool to take that fight once. He would be a huge... Yep. Huge fool to take it twice. Yep. That is a fight that he got 
so he, you know, I'm not going to say lucky because he, he went for the technique. It wasn't some, you know, sudden like fluke or something like that. But you, you walk out of that thanking whatever deities, whatever lucky stars, whatever talismans you, you might, you know, be praying to. And you don't ever, you don't ever look back. You, you haul ass away from it and you say, I'm never doing that again. Agreed. And that guy comes to you again and says, Hey, I, I, we had a great fight. I want to run back. You said, no, I did that. And I won. That's it. No. And, and that's what I was going to say. You, you know, for a fact that Kak Romanov, uh, you know, if they ask him after his next fight, you know, provides he gets a win, they ask him who he wants next. I yeah. will not be the least bit surprised if he says he wants a rematch with Saeed, but you're right. Saeed's not going to go for it. No. Um, um, Maybe he's crazy. Some of these MMA fighters, they do things that I don't understand. I mean, I, I don't. I, I don't. I would not get punched in the mouth for a living. That that right on its face shows there's a disconnect here. But I would definitely not want to hang my career on having on fighting Saeed Yakub Kakramanov more than one time if I don't no, have to. No. 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 Um. If it, I don't know, um, Rob Font could be a fun fight for uh, Nurmagomedov. Sure. I mean, like I say, all those guys up in the top edge of the top 50, I'm thinking Chris Gutierrez. I'd love to see two two dudes with a really uh, fun kicking game go after each other, yeah. see what they can make out of it. Um, but, you know, Yanez, Gutierrez... Font. Yanez, that'd be awesome. Yeah, they're all great fights up there. So, all right, that brings us to a catchweight bout, lightweight bout. Rafa Garcia against Hayasar Mahashate. And um, I knew, I, I, so I picked Mahashate going into this because there's a Twitter account called Mahashate2 that. I don't think is the fighter. I think it's just some troll, but it could be the fighter. And after and after I didn't pick him last time, he he uh, started trolling me and sending me pictures of himself wearing a crown and all this stuff. And so I was like, okay, I gotta pick him the next time. I don't need more of this in my life. But deep in my heart, this is very much the kind of performance I expected out of Rafa Garcia, a dude who has never been knocked out. And who has a very well-rounded game to just go out there and put a old man MMA performance on Mahashate. And what's even crazier about it, looking at the two in the cage, it, it looked like there was at least one weight class in it, between. It really did. Mahashate looks like a middleweight, and Garcia kind of looks like a featherweight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I knew that my shots were going to be bigger, but just seeing them uh, next to each other in the cage, it was startling. I was like, oh, wow, do I kind of regret picking Garcia on this? But, uh, you know, like you said, Garcia just put on that classic old man uh, veteran type performance that's, yep. you know, I'm, I'm going to teach you a lesson, kid. And, and that's exactly what he did, you know? Yeah. Um, just because, solid big one twos, get inside, go yep. for takedowns. Take the kid down. Take it. Mahashate gave his back every time he got taken down. Garcia would just jump right on his back every time, bleeding all over him like crazy. And yeah, just a messy, solid, do everything, take the fight everywhere fight from Garcia. 
Yeah, yeah. There, there was nothing pretty about Garcia's performance, including his appearance afterwards, as the the poor guy was just absolutely covered in blood. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, um, it, uh, looking at that, though, you know, I the other thing that I have to question is is Mahashata is only twenty three. Um, and he's already missing weight at lightweight. Do you think, yeah, he's gonna be a welterweight. He's got to yeah. be. Like, do you think he makes that move now, or is he? Do you think he's gonna try to keep uh, cutting down to one fifty-five? I mean, it's MMA, so you never know. You never know when a fighter is just gonna have it stuck in his head. Like, I mean, Charles Oliveira won the belt at lightweight and was still talking about like, oh, I want to go back to one forty-five and fight at one forty-five again. It's like, why? Yeah. What? Why? Why would you ever want to do that? I don't understand. So it might be that Mahashate just, he, he says, oh, that was a fluke, it's a bad weight cut, I can still make the weight, I'm going to go through it. But it seems really clear that he should be a welterweight, and that the UFC should probably, you know, if their Performance Institute isn't on it already, like, do the whatever body density testing or whatever you do to help fight, convince fighters that they need to change weight classes and do it for this kid because he does not look like a, a lightweight fighter out there. Yeah, no. And I, I think that was uh, one of the things that kind of hurt his performance as well. Just, you know, Hoppe was able to out-hustle him. And, yeah. and I'm wondering if that weight cut, it was uh, just debilitating for Mahashate and his energy levels. Could it could absolutely be the case. All right, that brings us to a welterweight bout. Renat Fakretinov. Against Brian Battle. And, um, yeah, this was, I think it was actually, let me, I need to check best fight odds. Was Battle actually favored in this? Uh, he was a slight underdog towards the end. Um, I want to say he was about plus 125 or something like that at the end. Yeah, okay, you're right. He wrapped up at plus 130 or so. Um, he did open as an underdog. Okay, it was it was really tight odds though. Yeah. And I I was watching table and I was like, this is just going to be a really rude wake up call for Brian Battle and for people who came off of watched that season of Tough and came out of it thinking like, oh yeah, Tough is making like another you know making making more top prospects and like Battle got taken down twice by Treshawn Gore, you know. Fakratinov was going to go out there and put a clinic on him, and he he got two thirty twenty fives. It was all one way traffic all the way through. Yeah, yeah, no, it. I'll give battle credit because you know you you were talking about uh, Said uh, Nurmagomedov constantly looking for submissions, like, and he could have given up, but he didn't. Battle, you can tell was looking for ways to win the fight you know he sure. was uh looking for submissions uh trying to get back to his feet but just he, he didn't have um uh the wrestling background uh that fucker dinov has and you know no, yeah. dinov just kept going and going and going he he did not let up an inch and i i was impressed uh yeah. given that fucker dinov has had issues with his uh uh or i shouldn't say issues i should say questions with his gas tank in the past, but there was no signs of that whatsoever this time. Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of it is, too, that Battle, winning the way he has and fighting the way he does, has gotten used to the idea that, like, 
and it's a very like regional MMA idea to have a very MMA idea in general to have like, oh, I can get put in any position, but I'm I'm tough enough to fight my way out of it, whatever it is. Yeah. And that's kind of been his reaction. And, you know, like it, it hasn't been totally wrong. Like I said, Treshawn Gore took him down twice. It's still a fight battle one. You know, yeah. he he has been able to fight his way out of bad spots in the past, but. You know, there's a reason that at some point you really need to defend takedowns and not give them up and then try to fight out of them. It's because there are people out there like Fakutinov who, once they get you down, you're not, once you've given up that much position, you're not getting it back. Yeah. No, and I, I think um, a lot of people, myself included, because as, as much as I hate to admit it, I, I did pick battle to win it. Um, I think that a lot of people were were uh, um, had the wool pull over their eyes based on Battle being able to beat uh, uh, Andre Petrovsky. Yeah, uh, Petrovsky's been able to to prove himself to be a force to be reckoned with. But we got to remember that uh, those performances in the Tough House need to be taken with a grain of salt because yeah, know, they don't they're have with, they're not with their own coaches. They're having to cut weight multiple times in a short period of time. It, yeah, they're not, they don't have camps. They just kind of show up. And do what they think they know to do. And yeah, we've seen Petrovsky gas a lot harder on tough than he has in the octagon. Even when he's gotten tired in the octagon, he's been able to fight his way through it a lot better. Yep. Yep. All right. That brings us to a flyweight bout. Monel Kopp, David Dvorak. And uh, man, this was just, you know, this was, this is, this is like, a little bit like Semmelsberger Matthews, but with a much more collected uh, and controlled monocop. I just got to feel a little bad for David Dvorak out here because he's sharp. He knows what's going on. He's get you know, he's got a lot of moments where cop just isn't doing that much. And Dvorak is putting out something and trying to feel his way through the fight, but it's just such a huge strength and power and athleticism difference that any success cop had was near like just totally wrecking Dvorak. Like he, he went for that Kimura from bottom. Like, Oh, okay. So here's a Kimura sweep from cop. He's going to try it. And like, maybe he's athletic enough to get it, to get the sweep. That would be pretty cool, but it's flyweight. You flyweights don't Kimura flyweights. Like it's, it's a power man. It's a strong man move. You got to yeah. be way stronger there and way heavier than your opponent. It's the kind of thing that you have 260 pounds behind you to twist an arm. Then you're going to really be able to Kimura somebody. Otherwise you can outbalance them for a sweep and you move on from there. And cop just about turned his arm into a Twizzler. Like he absolutely wrecked that arm and Dvorak didn't tap, which is a credit to him. He made it all the way to the end of the fight, which is a credit to him. But you see pictures of him pop up online right now. And that arm is in a sling. Like he sacrificed it out there. I'm going to have to look that up afterwards, but (laughs) um, yeah, no, uh, honestly, like the moments of success that Dvorak was able to have, it felt like during that period of time, cop was just kind of playing with his food. Yeah. Like, eh, yeah. I'll, I'll let you get that, you know, cause it cops out there showboating and, and yeah. doing whatever he wants to do pretty much. Um, cops, one of those guys that there was a lot of hype about him when he came into the UFC 
uh, and rightfully so. You know, he he yeah. scored a bunch of wicked knockouts uh, uh, in Ryzen, I believe it was. Yep. Just looked like a, a man among boys there, and I, I think that a little bit of overconfidence got the best of him when he came into the UFC. Um, uh, not, not that he didn't have difficult competition, he absolutely did. But uh, ever since those first two losses, he's kind of been refocused, and he, you know, even though he was clowning a bit, he, he didn't let the the clowning get in the way of the fact that he was going to win that fight. You know, he yeah. was very picky and choosy about when he opted to do it. He knew he was in control. He knew he had it uh, in the bag when he started doing that. So he's given what he's capable of doing you know damn well that the UFC is very interested in pushing him to the top as soon as they can. Yeah. He's absolutely a top 5% kind of athlete. Like yes, he can compete with the absolute very best in the world yep. for strength and power and speed. And it's just all for him. It's just all about, you know, I think a big part of it was to learning to fight at a UFC pace Yep, and learning just to, you know, you can't be unless you have a matchup like this where you have your opponent so obviously out, uh, overpowered. You can't just give away time in fights. Maybe he's kind of readjusted around that idea now, where he's to the point where he has figured out the pace and the tempo of the UFC well enough that he's back to being able to be a little more showboaty or whatever. This was certainly more like that, but. He has figured he's gotten certainly achieved a comfort level at this in in the UFC now that is allowing him to show off what a top tier athlete he is again. And yeah, like you know, we talk we talk about people. I want to see Brandon Royville fight. I want to see Brandon Royville fight Manuel Cop. Absolutely, I want to see yeah. uh, Amir Albazi fight Manuel Cop. I want to see Alex, Alexandra Pantoja fight. Uh, We've seen that one top again. <laughs> I want to see it again. Um, uh, Kaikara France. That would be Kaikara France. Yeah, I want to see Kaikara France fight Manel Cop. I want to see those top five fights. I, I definitely want to see Manel Cop against Davison Figueredo at some point. You know, uh, I don't think Figgy's going to be able to make flyweight for much longer. But no, I'm with you. Anyway, this was a great performance from him. So I'm I'm excited to see what comes next and uh, should be a top, you know, firmly top ten opponent, if not top five. That brings us to a bantamweight bout, first fight of the night, Sergey Morozov, Journey Newsom. And um, this fight just sucked. Plain and simple. <laughs> yeah. um, I was going to say it was a fight. <laughs> yeah, Morozov really didn't seem like he was comfortable stepping in on Newsom at all, which means that he gave Newsom a lot of time at range to throw out that sort of medium effect volume kicking game. And Morozov still managed to win the fight with when he did step in, landing better punches, clinching Newsom, taking him down, putting him against the cage, stuff like that. Just a really sticky, ugly fight, though. Really did not. It felt like Morozov could have had a lot more success with a pressure punching game, and he just didn't choose to take it. And it ended up really ugly. So is what it is. Uh before we sign out of here, fight of the night did go to Drew Dober, Bobby Green, absolutely deserved. Yes. And performance of the night, Alex Caceres, Mikhail Oleksijic, 
bad news for Amir Al-Bazi, who's going to have to be walking to his next UFC event. Hitch, maybe he can hitchhike. I don't know. Uh, well, Raul Rule says that I believe that he's getting a minivan, so there should be Al-Bazi there. Hey, yeah, that's right. Ro, uh, uh, yeah, Rosa's is getting he's getting his mom a minivan, so maybe maybe Al-Bazi can carpool to to the next UFC event. That's right. All right. Well, on that note, you can find me on Twitter at TheZaneSimon. You can find Dane on Twitter at TheDaneFox. You can find both of us over at BloodyElbow.com. Give us a like, subscribe to our podcast. We're on Bloody Elbow Presents on SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all those good places. We'll be back in one month's time for UFC Fight Night, Imavov versus Gastelum. Till then, everyone, adios. Have a good holiday. We'll see you next year. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Presents production. To check out more of our content, subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is titled Bloody Elbow Presents. We're also on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents and you'll get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, the Level Change Podcast, the MMA Bivis Section, the 6th Round Post-Fight Show, 6th Round Retro, the MMA Depressed Us, Crooklyn's Corner, Exclusive Fighter Interviews, Show Money, Guest Podcasts, the Hey Not The Face Podcast, and Radio Style Play-By-Play for every UFC pay-per-view. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloody elbow blog and as always on bloodyelbow.com. <laughs>